the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. This great nation will endure as it has endured. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. From every mountainside, let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Here's your host, Bob France. Alrighty then, good morning to you. Thank you so much for joining us at 9 minutes, or excuse me, now 10 minutes after the hour of 9 o'clock on this Monday. It's the 27th and penultimate morning of the second month of the year of our Lord, 2023. You know what penultimate means by now. Most people don't, but uh, I do this to you occasionally at the second to last day of every month. And I remind you that penultimate means second to last. It's the moment or day or, or uh, again, just second to last, or whatever that may be, whether it be of a day or of a month or of a week or of a year uh, or of a list, a penultimate item on a list. Number nine on a ten-item list would be the penultimate item. So there you go. Learn something new every day. Maybe you knew it. Maybe you didn't. But welcome. Appreciate you being with us. We plan to help you learn a lot of other things today. We've got fantastic guests. Three terrific. What a perfect time, by the way, for my 1010 guest. But let me let me do this in order for you. Coming up here in uh, about uh, 25 minutes or so, 20 minutes maybe. Yeah, 25, we'll call it. At 9.35, uh, Jim Jordan will join us, the ranking member. Boy, there's a flashback. The chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, will be joining us. He just went to Yuma, Arizona last week, along with Matt Gates and a host of others. And he did what Kamala Harris refuses to do. 
he did what Joe Biden refuses to do, and that is he went down and saw the actual border. Not a sanitized, whitewashed, cleaned-up version of a detention center or processing center. Not staying 30 miles away from the border, which, of course, Biden and Harris did, um, respectively. But he went down there in Yuma, Arizona, and actually saw the border and talked to the people and held a town hall, asked the ranchers and the people of that town what they've experienced, talked to the Border Patrol agents, what are you experiencing, got the statistics and the numbers, and they're staggering. How dangerous and deadly is this for Yuma? How dangerous and deadly is this for Arizona? How dangerous and deadly is this for the United States? And the answer is very on all three fronts. So Jim Jordan will join us to talk more about that and tell us what he experienced, among other things, at 9.35. At 10.10, this is the guest I just teased a moment ago. Daniel Horowitz will come back with us. We haven't talked to Daniel in a bit, senior uh, editor at um, uh, the at uh, Conservative Review. Daniel is the co-author of a book that was written, again, co-authored, sorry for the redundancy, by Steve Dace. I'm trying to find a way to say that I interviewed one of the authors already in the um, lead-up to the release of the book. It was all the way back in August, believe it or not, because the book's been done for that long, but they had, because of the supply chain and the supply line and everything else going on in, the, in Biden's America, uh, they couldn't get the book ready for release until Uh, the winter, which was going to be in February. Well, that time is here, and it was released last week, six days ago to be precise. But I interviewed Steve Dace, the co-author of The Fourth Reich, which is exactly about what we are experiencing with respect to the COVID um, scam, I guess. Not to say that the virus doesn't exist. It's not a scam in that regard, but it's a scam in that we were scammed in terms of its danger, in terms of its uh, spread, in terms of what would protect you from it and what wouldn't. The entirety of the control of the people, a la the Third Reich, um, is what this whole book is about. And Steve and I had a great conversation back in August when the book was finished. And now we're going to talk to his co-author, Daniel Horowitz. That'll be coming up at 1010. We're going to spend pretty much the entire hour with Daniel because the book is that in de- entailed, or rather that detailed, and we want to go that in-depth uh, on that conversation. And it's a perfect timing. The reason I teased it that way is because we're going to talk about this in the monologue here in a moment. The Chinese lab link or lab leak, rather, that we talked about, um, I don't know, for the last two and a half years, um, is being confirmed and corroborated by a very important federal agency. Two years ago, if you called the the uh, China flu, the Wuhan flu, the Chinese coronavirus, call it what you want, but two years ago, if you would have called that um, and, uh, a result of a lab leak in Wuhan, you were denounced as a conspiracy theorist. Now, two years later, you are getting corroboration and confirmation from prominent U.S. departments, including the U.S. Department of Energy, which is, co- co- uh, which is in agreement now with the FBI. That's right. More than a year after the FBI concluded that the lab leak theory was not just theory but fact, that this was the reason the coronavirus spread around the world, not some bat, some idiot ate it bat, and that transferred that to, uh, you know, which, of course, got it from other animals and so on and so forth, and then it, then it transmitted to or transferred to or became infected by uh, millions of others. No, 
It was indeed gain-of-function research and experience uh, gone wrong. They were experimenting it with it in, uh, in the lab, and either it escaped unintentionally or it was released. Either way, either way it is a lab leak, and uh, we're going to talk about that in a minute. But Daniel Horowitz, who wrote uh, The Fourth Reich with Steve Dace, uh, Rise of the Fourth Reich, Reich, rather, is going to be with us at 1010. And then at 1110, John Lott is going to be back with us. John Lott is an expert in the uh, in the world of guns, gun rights, gun control, or the attempted gun control and so forth. And he is uh, now writing and speaking out about the Biden administration's latest attempt to take our guns to force registries, to do something to stop us from being able to protect ourselves with our God-given Second Amendment rights. And that's right there, God-given. So uh, we're going to be talking to John Lott. That'll be coming up at uh, 1110. So there you go. Jim Jordan, Daniel Horowitz, and John Lott. Great conversations with all are coming. And, of course, I welcome you at 216-901-0945. Join in the conversation, 216-901-0945, or 888 888- Two eight one eleven ten. Now, before we get too in depth on the lab leak or anything else, let us start with our opening pledge of allegiance. Patriots, go ahead and stand where you are. Please rise, put your hand on your heart, and join us for a pledge. Face a flag if you have one. If you do not believe in getting to the true origin of the COVID nightmare and the COVID scam because you have the damage you know it's going to do to the federal government who pushed this thing upon us, well, then you don't believe in in, in honesty in integrity, in transparency, or what that flag represents, liberty. So you are therefore exempted from the request to pledge your allegiance to it. You may instead uh, take a knee next to your favorite ex-quarterback. As for the rest of us, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. So this matters, and it matters a lot. You know, we're starting to find out what many of us have known for some time now, and that is if you questioned the safety and the efficacy of the quote-unquote vaccines, which we all know as poison darts or profit jabs or stabs or whatever you want to call them, If you questioned the efficacy of those darts, if you questioned the effectiveness of masks, if you questioned and opposed the effectiveness of lockdowns, closed schools, businesses shuttered, churches closed, If you did any of those things over the course of the last two and a half to three years now, and you know, we're coming up on three years, we're what, three weeks away-ish, right? March 20th, 2020 was about the time, I think, when all of this really started. So we're about three weeks away. And if you question any of those things, you were branded as a dumb extremist conspiracy theorist because you didn't believe in the science, and if you called the coronavirus, which was which originated in Wuhan, China, if you called it what it was, a product of 
research and experimentation and Wuhan laboratory funded in part by the United States of America under the leadership of Dr. Anthony Fauci, who provided those funds. If you believe that this entire thing came from that lab and not from some organic, natural, strange phenomenon in which one animal bit another and then another and another, and then suddenly it showed up in bat soup. And somebody in a Chinese wet market ate some pat soup and got infected by this and then infected somebody else and then away we go around the pandemic, the pandemic around the world. If you said you didn't buy that story and you believed it came from a lab leak instead, you were a conspiracy theorist. You were a nut. You were an anti-science. You were a science denier. Isn't that what they told us? Isn't that what they called us? And isn't it odd that now almost three years on, certainly at least two and a half years on, what are we hearing? Huh. The largest study of face masks done in the world. 65 different studies in 19 different countries studying the effectiveness of face masks in randomized controlled studies. Face masks of people, or excuse me, infection rates of people who wore their face masks religiously versus those who wore them not at all. And we found out that, huh, how about that? Face masks do nothing. They were never intended to stop airborne particles from going into the lungs, from being ingested. Face masks were created, those surgical masks were created to stop doctors from sweating or dripping or spittling into the open body cavity of surgical patients. That's why the open body cavity of surgical patients is the only time when they wear them. You notice when they leave the operating room, they take the mask down. Why? Because it's not about particles, it's about bodily fluids, for goodness sakes. It always allowed the doctors to breathe, and if you can breathe the air from outside the mask, then you can breathe in the particles from that air, including any that might contain coronavirus, which was airborne. We talked about this for for such a long time when we pushed back against the mask mandates. What were we told? Shut up, anti-science. Shut up, science denier. Just put it on. Put it on, or get out of here. Put it on, or you're fired. Put it on, or you can't come to class. Put it on, or you can't go to preschool. We fought that for so long. Here we are nine, three years on, and okay, they didn't work. Huh. It's almost like the conspiracy theories we were accused of having, it's almost like they weren't really conspiracy theories. They were facts that those who were pushing the entire COVID scam, and when again, that's not to say that the coronavirus doesn't exist. Obviously it did, and obviously some a lot of people succumbed to it. But it is to say that there were so many elements of the response to it which were absolutely unnecessary and ineffective, and we said so. And we were branded as misinformation purveyors, disinformation purveyors, science deniers, and liars. That was on the mask side. Then, of course, we get to the shot side. Over and over and over, Rochelle Walensky told us, Dr. Anthony Fauci told us, Joe Biden told us. Jill Biden told us. MSNBC told us. CNN told us. Everybody told us. If you take the stab, you won't get infected. And if you take the stab, you can't infect anybody else. Hmm. They told us that for two solid years. Until eventually, those of us who said, yes, you can, Because these, quote-unquote, vaccines are not as effective as natural immunity, the body's natural immune system, 
and people are taking the stabs and getting infected with COVID. And then suddenly, a whole bunch of prominent people got infected with COVID after having the stabs, including the CEOs of the big pharmaceutical companies, like Pfizer, including Joe Biden and Joe Biden, multiple times, despite multiple stabbings, over and over and over, till eventually they had to admit and say, okay, well, you know, it's a vaccine still, but we're changing the definition of vaccine, you see. It, uh, it doesn't inoculate you from getting the virus. It doesn't stop the virus from being spread, but, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll keep you alive. It'll, it'll, be, it'll lessen your symptoms. You won't have to go to the hospital. You'll just have a mild case of COVID. They had to change the entire thing. They've lied and covered up the realities of this for three years. And now their lie about how the whole thing got started is being exposed. The virus that causes COVID-19 most likely leaked from a Chinese laboratory, according to a classified report based on new intelligence and recently sent to the White House and key members of Congress by the U.S. Energy Department. This stunning assertion comes more than a year after the FBI concluded that a lab accident in China was the origin of the release, which has killed, according to the numbers, and these are all very, very suspicious because of the number of people that they said died from COVID when they only died with COVID. But they're calling it 6.8 million people around the world, 1.1 million in the U.S. And again, those numbers are very specious. The FBI's decision was made with moderate confidence and remains the Bureau's opinion, said the Wall Street Journal. By contrast, the Department of Energy made its determination with low confidence. Sources who have read the classified report told the journal. But the judgment is important because the Energy Department, which oversees the American Nuclear Weapons Program, runs a network of national labs and has a great deal of scientific expertise. Both agencies reportedly arrived at their conclusions for different reasons, which is big, by the way means one didn't just piggyback off the other. They saw different things, and both of those different sets of reasons led to the same conclusion, lab leak. In response to the uh, Wall Street Journal's report, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said there is a variety of views in the intelligence community, and the origin of the COVID-19 remained under investigation. You know exactly where it came from. You know exactly, but Joe Biden does not want to cross his Chinese master's. He doesn't want to say it out loud. Because that might encourage Xi Jinping to raise the stakes a little bit and start funding Russia in the war effort against Ukraine, knowing that we are funding Ukraine in the war effort against Russia. It's going to lead to a further um, diminishing of our, our relations with the Chinese if he says this out loud. Biden said this, quote, here's what I can tell you. Oh, I'm sorry, no, this is Jake Sullivan said this about Biden. Here's what I can tell you. President Biden has directed repeatedly every element of our intelligence community to put effort and resources behind getting to the bottom of this question. Good, Jake. Then just tell us what the agencies found. And the answer is that it was a lab leak. If we gain any further insight or information, we'll share it with Congress, and we will share it with the American people. But right now, there's not a definitive answer that has emerged from the intelligence community on this question. So the intelligence community comes forward and says, it was a lab leak. And then the Biden administration says, as soon as the intelligence community tells us something worth telling you, uh, we'll announce it. Sounds to me like you're waiting to get an intelligence agency, one or another, to tell you what you want to hear. Which is, no, it wasn't a lab leak. So that you don't have to tick off your Chinese masters. That's exactly what it sounds like is happening here. 
So we've got all of this to discuss. We're going to do it with Daniel Horowitz. I'm going to ask Jim Jordan about this, too, coming up after the bottom of the hour news. But I welcome your thoughts to 216-901-0945-888-281-1110. It's always right. Radio right back. Keeping you informed among the uninformed. Always right radio with Bob France on The Answer. Yes, indeed. 936 now. Thanks for being with us on Always Right Radio. Don't forget Daniel Horowitz, conservative review and The Blaze, going to join me at 1010 to talk about his new book with Steve Dace called The Rise of the Fourth Reich. It's extraordinary. And uh, right now I want to welcome our good friend, the uh, almost said ranking member. He is the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. He is Ohio's fourth congressional district representative and our regular Monday guest. Of course, I speak of Congressman Jim Jordan. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm fine, Bob. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Um, wish I could have been with you last week, to be honest with you. Um, but I was really, really taken. Yeah, I was really, really taken with uh, all of the stuff that I have heard you present already on what you found. I love that you had a town hall. But for those who didn't see any of the above and didn't know what you did when you or what you were doing in Yuma, Arizona, and what you were hoping to find out, what did you learn? What did you discover about the real? Because what you did is you went to the border. You didn't go thirty miles away right. from it like Kamala. You didn't go to a whitewashed, right. sanitized processing center like Biden did. You went to the actual heart of the matter what'd you find we heard from real people i mean we not of course we heard from border patrol agents and all the hard work they're doing but we heard from the county supervisor we heard from the mayor we heard from uh the the sheriff in that town and maybe most importantly we heard from the guy who runs the hospital the yuma hospital and he talked about what it meant what it has meant to them that that the times where there have been american citizen residents who couldn't deliver their child at the at the uh, 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 hospital because it was full because they were they were taking care of migrants and look we, we, if, you, if migrants are you got to take care of them we understand that and that we're we're compassionate folks but what it means for a community in their healthcare system their education system their 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 criminal justice system the cost to taxpayers we we saw why the intentional deliberate purposeful premeditated actions the Biden administration took regarding our border, why they have such implications. And guess what happened? Just yesterday, you saw that story in the, in the New York Times where it highlights what's happening to these young people who are being exploited, come across, and, and how they're having to work and things that are going on there. So we saw firsthand just how, how serious it is and why it matters, not only now to the folks on the border, but all across the country because it's been 5 million illegal migrants who have entered since Joe Biden took off. So Chairman Jordan, um, I, I I I watched this and I and I did see some of the media coverage, uh, but the media coverage, as you know, is very limited because most of the media wants to bury all of this. How do we open yep. the eyes of the rest of well, the, your 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 colleagues in Congress on the other side and their constituents? How do we how do we emphasize to them the importance of what you found? This isn't theory anymore. This isn't a game. That we're talking about real lives. Yeah. We're talking about real people. We're talking about real drugs. Yeah. We're talking about real sex trafficking victims and everything else that we see on that border. How do we open their eyes and how do we get anything done about it when the Biden administration seems so steadfast in their refusal to deal? I, I think it's happening, Bob, because if you saw even even in, in the past several weeks, Eric Adams, the Democrat mayor in New York, is saying what, we can't take any more people coming to New York. So it's you know, as we've said now for a while, it's not just the border, although that's where it's been the most pronounced. But the problem is all across the country because you're talking you're talking almost half the population of our entire state that has now come across the southern border, over five million people. So th- th- that, I think, is beginning to, to sink in. And I always go back to this. And this is what this is what I still can't figure out. 
because it has to be intentional, as I said before, because on day one, Joe Biden said, we are no longer going to build a wall. We are no longer going to have the remain in Mexico while we evaluate your claim. And we are not going to deport or detain anyone unless there's some kind of felon. We're not going to deport or detain anyone for, for uh, an immigration violation. Well, when those are your three things, no wall, no, no wait, and no deportation, everyone's going to come. And that's exactly what we've seen. So the, 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 I think the sort of the fundamental question is, why are they doing this, particularly now when we know what it means to communities, even Democrat mayors are speaking up, and of course, the harm that happens, particularly to women and children who make this journey that the cartels are the only ones benefiting from, that that, that to me is like, I, just, I, I can't figure these folks out why they would do it. Is it political? What is the reason? Or maybe it's just because they don't, they're so against President Trump, they had to do 180 degrees opposite of the good policies he had in place. I don't know that, but what we do know is how bad it's become. Yeah, I, I, th- I think it's much deeper than just being against President Trump's policies, because they were doing this even before Trump. This is what they did during the Obama years, too. And, you know, uh, Congressman Jordan... <clears throat> When we talk about, um, you know, the reasons why, I think it's very, very evident the reason why. You did say political, and I think you're right. And what really is frustrating to me is they continue to conflate. And I heard Alejandro Mayorkas do this again last week. They continue to conflate border security with immigration reform. In other words, if Republicans like you won't deal on what, what we're going to do with the 10 to 12 to 15 to 20 million illegal aliens who are in this country right now, giving them some sort of an amnesty, pathway to citizenship, persona, and so forth, then they won't secure the border, which, of course, then just continues to make the problem uh, in, you know, in the interior United States worse. But they've basically yeah. said, if you don't give us the amnesty we want for the rest of them, you'll never, ever get this. And then they blame to the media, which is more than willing to carry their water, Republicans for not wanting to do anything about, quote unquote, immigration reform. Yeah, but that, and you and I know that is crazy because they also will will say like if if you did put together a package that said oh here's the here's the border security here's the immigration enforcement legislation that will stop what what's what's going on as long as you give us amnesty we'll go for that you all they always get the amnesty then they never do the second part because right. frankly they won't m- do it concurrently right right oh, but but even if they even if it would pass which is sort of the situation we have now they're not enforcing the law. As we speak now, so we can pass new legislation, which we plan to do, but most of the problem right now is the failure of this administration to adhere to the rule of law, to enforce the existing laws on the book. Because existing laws say you, you, don't, you don't just get to just stay in the country. We, we, they, 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 can, they can stick with the policies that were in place under President Trump, but they won't do that. So, so much of it's driven by we're just not going to follow the law. So even if we would pass a new one, now we're going to try, we're going to put together some, some new language that we think is helpful. But still, a lot of it is just a failure to do what they're supposed to do on the border as we speak. Congressman Jordan, last follow-up on the immigration issue because you went to Yuma, so I'm going to give you one more here. You recently tweeted, illegal immigration affects schools, healthcare systems, yeah. infrastructure, jobs, inflation, rents, crime, and government resources. Now, we know that those effects aren't felt only by Arizonans and Texans and New Mexicans and Californians, the border states. Right. We know they affect Ohioans as well. Are there any metrics, any numbers, any idea how Ohioans are affected on this area? How has illegal immigration affected your constituents and yeah, well, not point. mine, but people like me and all across this country and the jobs, the crime, and so forth? We're going to start putting that together. We do know, as an example, uh, there in Yuma, the administrator of the hospital said it was $26 million of uncompensated care uh, that they provided to just illegal migrants coming across the border. Many, many times it was a mom who was pregnant and delivering a child, and they had to, they had to take care of them, and then they got to, and sometimes 
because they didn't get the, these these particular moms, and you feel for them, they didn't get the kind of prenatal care that you get here in the United States. And so a lot of times that mother and that child were in the hospital for a long time, and they're taking care of that. They, they'd be in the in the neo, neonatal intensive care stuff uh, unit. So th- th- that that th- th- he talked about the cost there, but a lot of that cost is now coming everywhere. And he they mentioned the super the county supervisor mentioned that I think it was like in some cases there were like twenty some languages that schools were having to deal with, and so you know they're they're used to on the border dealing with English and Spanish. But now with a bunch of other languages they have to deal with when kids are in school there, that's a huge cost to a community and to their educational system. So those costs are real, uh, and, and like I said, we, they're coming to other areas. We, we're, we're beginning to put that together and find out what those costs are in, uh, in other parts of the country. We're talking to Congressman Jim Jordan, the uh, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. Congressman, uh, let's, I want to move on to some big news over the weekend. The Energy Department. Uh, has issued a report saying they agree with the FBI that the COVID-19 pandemic that has just crushed so many economies around the globe, including ours because of decisions we made on how to react to it, uh, did not come from nature. It did not come from a bat biting a penguin or a pangolin or something else. It was, it was in a lab late. It was in a lab, I should say. Now, whether the leak was intentional or not is something that is unknown at this point, but it did leave that lab. Um, two years ago when you said this and I said this, we were called conspiracy nuts. What do you say now? Yeah, they, and they were they were uh, uh, Twitter and <clears throat> and government were, were looking to take down anything you posted online that was contrary to the quote conventional wisdom. And the conventional wisdom, when it comes from the federal government, tends to be wrong so often, as is as is in the case uh, with, with this issue. Yeah, I mean, like, look, look, it didn't take a, a genius to figure out. You know, I always say, tell people I'm just a country boy from Western Ohio, but I kind of figured it came from a lab, and that's why we said it. Uh, and and here's the key, though, and we've talked about this. I think Fauci knew from the day one, from the get-go, that this thing came from a lab because he gets an email on January 31st, 2020, that says virus looks engineered. The virus is not consistent with evolutionary theory. He goes into overdrive, organized a conference call, puts together this paper, helps edit the paper, all of it to say, no, 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 it came from a bat to a penguin to a hippopotamus to a person, all the, all the BS that they put forward. So that, that is um, – this is just confirming what we already suspect. And then so often, as we've said many times, the biggest purveyor of misinformation is the federal government. And yet they were actually trying to set up a disinformation governance board to say what Bob France and Jim Jordan and others and your listeners and people around this great country could say and couldn't say, which was just how ridiculous this all played out. Will there be a congressional um, committee created, a specific committee to to research the origin of this thing and uh, assign responsibility? Yes. It, there, there's a select committee on coronavirus that is continuing. Another Ohioan, Brad Winsor, is chair of that. Um, I get to be a part of that committee a, a, a little bit. Uh, it's, it's part of the oversight committee, but Mr. Winsor is going to be chairing that. And uh, there's going to be a hearing, I think, next does, week. Does that focus on hearing. origin, though? I'm sorry, sir. Does that focus on origin or just on response here and its impact? It, all of it. All now, of it. now, when okay. the Democrats ran it and I was on that committee, it was all about beating up President Trump and all kinds of baloney, and they never answered some of the fundamental questions, like all the lies that we were told about this virus. You know, they told us that it wasn't gain-of-function. They told us that it wasn't a lab leak. They told us it wasn't our tax money. They told us that the vaccinated couldn't get it. The vaccinated couldn't transmit it. They told us masks work, and on and on it goes. So th- that committee didn't focus on any of those sort of fundamental questions and the misinformation we got from the government. But uh, this committee will, in fact, focus on that. Speaking of President Trump, because I know you're a strong supporter of his for, re-ele- or for well, it would be re-election. It's just one term yep. removed. <laughs> uh, 
But to go yep. back to the White House, um, he continues to um, scratch a lot, make people scratch their heads, a lot of conservatives, um, with his continued defense and support of the shots. Um, he's, of course, never mandated them, which is true. Biden mandated right. them. Um, but he continues to support their, their safety and their efficacy. He says this is the greatest right. thing, uh, despite some extraordinary uh, situations that we have learned since these things were rolled out. Do you think it's in his best interest? Or let me rephrase. Why do you think he continues to defend the the uh, the big pharma shots that are causing so much damage to so many people, um, you know, at this stage of the game. Well, yeah, I think he's probably where, uh, you know, probably where a lot of the like like tomorrow. I think we're going to have a uh, a roundtable discussion with some of the with Dr. Bhattacharya and others, and I think the presence where 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 these guys are, which is never should have been a mandate, but that the shots uh, were, were probably beneficial for for older Americans who had other underlying health concerns. Um, particularly early on, and a lot of people, you know, a lot of Americans received those shots. I think that the, the big concern that we're now finding out is younger people and why the, why, why the Biden administration ever pushed this ridiculous mandate, particularly on our troops. And, and it's, you know, we can't meet our recruiting goals now, and yet they got this mandate on, on young men and women in our, and who wear the uniform of our country. I think that's where the president is, is at on, on, on the issue. Um, and that's where, you know, that's where I've always been all along. I, 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 per- <clears throat> I personally didn't get the shot, but I know my parents did. And I thought, you know, for, for them who were, were older Americans, it's probably good early on to, to do that. So I think that's probably where the president's at. Um, let's go back to committee questions, not the uh, uh, the one we just discussed, but your committee, the uh, judiciary. Let's talk about the five big tech CEOs that you are subpoenaing. First of all, what is the goal of those subpoenas? And number two, why only those five? Well, the goal is to get the same information from these companies that Twitter, because of Elon Musk, made available to the world. And we now have, I think, up to 17 different Twitter files, uh, you know, releases and, and media commenting on certain aspects of what what happened. Um, so the, the goal is to get the same kind of information from these tech companies. And our working hypothesis is that if the government was pressuring and priming uh, Twitter to do the things that took place there, they probably did the same with the other social media companies as well. So we want to see that and just see how much this, as Jonathan Turley said, this censorship by surrogate, how much it was uh, really taking place. Because our guess is, uh, our, our thinking is it probably just wasn't uh, Twitter, but these other companies as well. Yeah, and um, you know, you know what I, I really worry about as it pertains to these. And if I have it right, you have the CEOs of Amazon, Apple, Meta, Microsoft, and Google, which are all very, very important. Um, so you're, you're you're just assuming that the Twitter executives that have already been called from the former leadership of Twitter were done with them. Well, we we feel like we're getting the information. I mean, we got all kinds of communications between Yoel Roth and Jim Baker and uh, the, uh, the the other individual who testified. Uh, you know, Yoel Roth was head of trust and safety. Jim Baker was chief counsel at the FBI, then became a, a general uh, deputy chief counsel at, at, at Twitter. So we think we're getting that information from uh, from uh, Mr. Musk, and he's been he's been very helpful. Um, I think he understands. He truly believes in the First Amendment. I've had a chance to visit with him. He thinks like you and I do on the First mm-hmm. Amendment, which, you know, God bless him. And what he's given us is, is tremendous. So we're hoping, as I said, to get that same kind of information from the other companies. The only reason I ask uh, if we're done with them as you start on with these other individuals who are executives in the other companies um, is I'm going back to my first question, which is the goal here. Is the goal just to expose and get information or is there ever going to be accountability on the on the table? Well, the, the goal is to get the facts on the table and then propose legislation. What we can do in the, in the legislative branch uh, 
in Congress is propose remedies legislatively. We can't propose, and well, we can't, we can't indict, we can't, uh, we can't prosecute anyone. Now, we could do a referral, uh, and see what the Justice Department does, but my guess is if, if, you know, conservative Republicans, uh, send a referral to, to Merrick Garland, I don't know that he's gonna put a whole lot of stock and weight in that, but we, we, we may do that. What we, what we can do though is get the facts on the table, uh, show what happened, and then, proposed legislation that we think will help fix the problem. We plan to do both of those. Well, I'm glad to hear that, uh, Congressman, because we're all waiting not only for things to be fixed, but obviously, again, for some accountability. The only way you take uh, people who live their lives based on money, and we're talking about the kind of dollars you do with the executives of these people, is to take their money from them. I hope there are fines in the offing. I hope there is some sort of accountability for their censorship of the of the American people or certain members of the American population, as we've talked about, uh, their attempted port, uh, portrayal of, of honest scientific uh, research as being disinformation and so forth, all to advance their own agenda and their own profits and their partnerships, for example, with big pharmaceutical companies. I hope there is yeah. some sort of accountability to come there. And well, I know it's a process. Well, Go ahead. well, we can't, again, we can't issue any fines or anything, but when it, when it comes to the money, what we can do is we can, we can use the power of the purse when it comes to federal agencies who participate in this. So when, it, when, when you're thinking about uh, DHS and FBI and DOJ and others who participated in this, who are having these weekly meetings with big tech in the run-up, as an example, in the run-up to the 2020 election, Telling them be on the lookout for a hack and leak operation, yada yada, wink wink, and and knowing that 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 there something could happen relative to Hunter Biden. I mean, so yeah, we can we can use the power of the purse on the government. What we can't do is level any fines against a private individual. That that would have to come from. Uh, uh, you know, some kind of court action. Well, and you know what else it could come from is civil litigation. And if we do have a, a, a you know, a, a congressional committee's determination of their their liability in all of this, then perhaps people who are damaged by them publicly uh, could could go hit them in the pocketbook the right way through uh, through civil court. Could, uh, go, could go to court and use the findings of a congressional committee as part of their evidence. Yep, bingo. That, that's exactly what I'm saying. Last question for you. Biden confirmed he will not go to East Palestine. Pete Buttigieg didn't get there until three weeks later. Why do you think Biden is just completely ignoring this small segment of the American population? Because that's that's the, the, he didn't go to the border for forever. I mean, this is how this this administration operates. Um, and, and again, I think it I just think it just shows the difference. President Trump, I mean, President Trump went there last week. I, I mean, so President Trump, man of the people, shows up there talking with folks, buying Big Macs for people. I mean, th- th- what a contrast. And maybe maybe if I'm Joe Biden, uh, you know, if, if you if you ran this administration and this in, in the track record of this administration, <laughs> maybe, Bob, you wouldn't show up either as, as dismal a record as these guys have. But I, I think, again, it just underscores the different standard here, where President Trump came there, met with the folks, uh, talked to them, showed that he cared about what's happening here in our great state. Um, and I, I just, you know, I, I, I had to smile when, when he's in the McDonald's buying Big Macs for people, talking with folks. I mean, that is so President Trump. And, and again, what a contrast. But, yeah, I, I think my, the fundamental issue is if you had a track record as bad as these guys in the Biden administration, probably wouldn't show up either. Yeah. Well, and plus, after you ignore a problem like this for over three weeks, if you do show up, you know you're just going to be greeted with the chorus of boos, uh, particularly since the former yeah, president beat wouldn't. you down there to try to help the people uh, before you as the acting president ever did. So we'll let that go yep. for now. Uh, Congressman Jim Jordan, uh, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, thank you for the time, as always, sir. We'll talk to you, you next time. All right. That's Jim Jordan. It's 956. We'll take our time out here. Always Right Radio continues.
You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Welcome to Always Right Radio with Bob France on AM 1420. The answer. Hour number two underway now. It is nine minutes after 10 o'clock. Thanks for being with us on this Monday morning, the 27th and penultimate morning of the uh, second month of the year of our Lord, 2023. About It's hard to believe, really, uh, that we have to go back six months now. But six months ago, in August, at the very end of August, I think it might have been August 31st, I did an interview with Steve Dace, Dace who is the co-author of of Rise of the Fourth Reich, confronting COVID fascism with a new Nuremberg trial so this never happens again. Here's a one-minute clip of what he told me. Uh, the Nuremberg Code came out of, there was a subset of the Nuremberg trial uh, after World War II that dealt specifically with what they described as a biomedical authoritarian state. Uh, and it was the fact that uh, using public health as the tip of the spear in imposing uh, fascism uh, down to the molecular level of German culture, uh, they saw the going along with it of uh, the medical system. Uh, they thought that, that there's no way, they came to the conclusion at Nuremberg, Bob, there was no way that they could have imposed this without the medical establishment. So they were given a subset of their own trials. There are 10 precepts when it comes to medical experimentation, uh, when it comes to informed consent, treatment of patients, uh, using public health or wide state power to impose medical directives, which you can and cannot do. And the really good news is, brother, that we violated absolute every freaking syllable of them in the last 29 months. That was my favorite part of what was a terrific 22-minute interview. We violated every single bit of it, every last syllable, syllable of it, of course, now in the last two and a half years. Well, that was Steve Dace, co-author of the book. The His co-author is our next guest, our good friend Daniel Horowitz. It's been a little while since we've had Daniel on our program. Daniel, of course, is the senior editor at Conservative Review and at The Blaze. He is also a terrific podcast host of The Conservative Conscience and, uh, again, co-author of Rise of the Fourth Right. Daniel, welcome back. How are you, my friend? Hey, I'm doing all right. A lot more gray hair since last time. <laughs> I can imagine. I, you're a very busy man. You continue to crank out content that is unbelievable. Your research is second to none, and your ability to articulate it uh, is the same, which, of course, is what makes this book so incredibly important and such a very important read for everybody. Now, I interviewed uh, Steve, as I said, way back in August, and this is when the book was finished, but it wasn't going to be released until February, and it was released now just last week, six days ago, which is why we're having you on now. And I asked him at the time why such a you know lead time there on the release of the book, and he pointed to um, well ongoing problems in the supply chain, getting everything that is needed to to, to uh, create and publish these books. What what else is um you know what else has transpired from the time I talked talked to Steve until today, Daniel, uh, with respect to the subject matter at hand? Sure. What hasn't transpired? Every day we find another nugget that demonstrates that these shots are deadly beyond belief that the short-term problems we are seeing, we estimate roughly 7 to 8 million people globally died from them. Tens of millions were killed. That is just the tip of the iceberg because those are the short-term maladies. You have to understand, uh, Fauci famously said in 1999 uh, when asked by Congress about an HIV vaccine, he said, look, 
you could have a vaccine that's pretty good, even up to 10 years, and then 10 to 12 years later, all hell breaks loose. Well, what happens if all hell breaks loose immediately? Uh, what does that portend for the future? You know, the precept, the last precept of the number code, number 10, is how during the course of an experimentation, uh, and, and mind you, that meant that you have informed consent of individual participants, not you rope in 5.5 billion people in the world, uh, mandating, marketing, distributing, funding it, and then absolving them of liability. Oh, and then the government shares with the royalties with Moderna. Uh, it didn't mean that, but even a real uh, you know, trial, you have to immediately terminate the experiment at any stage if there's probable cause to believe it's causing problems. Now it is out in the open that this is negatively effective, ineffective, but more importantly, implicates every single organ system and uses both the lymphatic and vascular systems to uh, wreak that destruction. And yet not only are they not pulled off the market. I mean, you still have the health care mandates in place. You still have people losing their job for it in certain circles. And they are building on this to put the mRNA of RSV shots out in just a couple months and the flu shots as well. They put it on the childhood immunization schedule. They have now created ICD codes to track Americans who are recalcitrant in getting these shots. So they are building every aspect of the biomedical surveillance and tyranny state. And if you look at the broad contours of what we've been through, and we outline this in, in the book, in The Rise of the Fourth Reich, through actual testimonies. It's not so much a data book. It has some of it in there, some data science. That's, as you well know, in my daily columns and my podcast, mm -hmm. but through the stories of what sh should be a mock Nuremberg trial of victims and witnesses and experts, um, what actually happened, but what's still happening today. And you will be shocked that... You look at, all, again, all the aspects, gain of function that they created it. They blocked the treatment for it. They foisted upon us uh, therapeutics that they knew from day one were problematic, like remdesivir to this day, still the standard of care. And then culminating with the shots, the tyranny, the, freedom of the, uh, the restriction on the freedom of movement. Do you know not a single one of those elements has been legally, legislatively, um, morally, medically extirpated from our society, culture, and body politic. It is shocking um, how, you know, never again is an empty slogan if we emerge from the past few years and not move to protect human rights, medical freedom, bodily autonomy, and informed consent as much as we can. So that's kind of the overview of, of what the book's about, where we are, where we're headed. I'm going to ask you in a minute about uh, the Fourth Reich uh, titling. I asked Steve that, that as well, and I, and I really appreciated his response. I want to get yours. But before I do, um, let's go back to the beginning, the beginning of your what you just listed, and that is the beginning of the, uh, of the pandemic, which um, you know is the lab leak. Uh, just literally over the weekend, we heard from the U.S. Energy Department, the Federal Department of Energy, saying we agree with the FBI, even a little bit stronger. They have a moderate uh, confidence level that this is the FBI's level in which they said they believe it was from a from a lab leak as well, man-made and in a lab was uh, at a low level of confidence, but that was still the, the way they were going. And on the Energy Department, 
uh, says uh, we have a, a moderate confidence level that, yes, this was not some natural occurrence. This wasn't a bat soup situation. This was absolutely created in a lab. Um, we see that and we hear that now. When you or I said that two, two years ago, we're going to get canceled. We're going to get shadow banned. We're going to get blocked. We're going to be called science deniers and so on and so forth. What does it mean that they're starting to come around and admit these things today? It means a lot of things. Number one, it means that they knew exactly what this was. So they understood that this came from EcoHealth Alliance, uh, working with Ralph Barrick of UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, and, and by the way, this is not the China virus. This is the U.S. virus. That's one of the chapters in our book. And what it means is, you see, the gain of function was on this, what's called the furin cleavage on the spike protein. That was really what made this thing so problematic, fixed to your endothelium, the, the lining of your blood vessels, and that's what makes the shot so problematic that it uh, codes your body to produce an unlimited number of spikes in an unlimited number of locations for an unlimited period of time. But here's the thing. They, they knew this, this could have been treated. See, if I say, oh, my gosh, I don't know what this is. Man, this is just came from somewhere we don't know how to treat this. We got to lock down. But in fact, they knew exactly what this was, and therefore they knew they could have um, developed treatments. And indeed, a lot of the treatments that we talk about with the doctors in our book, um, where they use these broad-spectrum anticoagulants, anti-inflammatories, um, uh, spoke to that gain-of-function um, nature that made it more pathogenic. So that's number one. And a lot of people forget that point, that they were complicit in the death of the COVID because not just because they were behind creating it, but also that they, they could have fessed up to it and said, hey, this is what it is. You know what I'm saying? If I, if I release a Frankenstein on you, I could say, oh, well, okay, this is exactly what it is. Here's what we need to do. Um, but if I want to absolve myself of all liability, I'll be willing to have people die just to cover up what it actually is. But moreover, this is, this is something called a limited hangout. It's a CIA tactic. There's actually, actually a Wikipedia entry on it. You can look it up. A limited hangout. When government realizes that they have to concede a point, so they'll concede the most limited, they'll hang out, they'll leave out for you, dangle in front of you, the most limited form of it. Um, the, the lab leak is a, is a... It may as well be from a bat market at this point. I'm saying... That's meaningless because to most Americans, oh, yeah, the Chinese dabble in this stuff, you know, whether it came from a, a, a lab or it came from a, a market, what, what am I supposed to do about that? I mean, the Chinese are evil and this is what they do. But, you know, it further accentuates the fact that, oh, this is the China virus or it's a Chinese lab. It's kind of like someone who points to the moon and the idiot focuses on the finger, not the moon. The, the point here, the operative point is not the – Wuhan lab that may have been the place where it ultimately leaked from, although there is some evidence there were multiple iterations of this circulating for a few years. Um, the operative point is that it was the U.S. government, such as DARPA and the CIA, Defense Threat Reduction Agency, Chemical Biologics Defense Program, working with these NGOs uh, that they work with that are a bunch of fronts, Moderna, which we still don't know exactly what it is, but it does seem to be a quasi-government entity. Uh, government even shares the patent. They just had a dispute over that. Um, they developed this. And, Bob, the biggest warning of this book is this is another point 
see, if this was a one, they, they let us believe this is a once in a hundred year phenomenon, right? right. So you could say, all right, we're done with it for a hundred years. But this, we now know, oh, well, it's not. It was done on purpose, or at least it was created on purpose. Now suddenly we see H1N5, bird flu, is jumping to mammals. Gee, how does that happen suddenly? We see Marburg's disease. That's, that's a form of hemorrhagic fever kind of in the family of Ebola um, outbreak in, in, in Guinea-Bissau in, in Western Africa there. Um, we have a lot of gain of function still going on. We have the Ukrainian biolabs that our government admitted to almost a year ago. What's being done there? You see what I'm saying? The point is not the Wuhan lab. The point is our government continues to do this out in the open and not fully banning that and getting to the bottom of it is like not banning box cutters after 9-11. We're talking to Daniel Horwitz, who is the senior editor at Conservative Review and at The Blaze. He is a podcast host and he is an amazing author in his book, uh, co-written with uh, Steve Dace, is uh, The Rise of the Fourth Reich. Uh, confronting COVID fascism with a new Nuremberg trial, so it never happens again. There's a meme uh, popping around uh, the Internet lately um, that fe- features, what, three, six, ten different Time magazine covers. I bring this up only because what you're saying about the every 100 years thing. And the, the, the uh, same fear, different year meme shows Time in 2003, the truth about SARS, 2004, bird flu, uh, 2005. Uh, can't even read which death threat that was. I think that might have been avian. Oh, it's avian flu. 2009, while you'll never, uh, while you'll be wearing masks again, I can't remember which one that is. Then H1N1 in 09, chasing Ebola 2014, Zika 2016, uh, can't read 2017s, and then Corona 2020 and 2021. So, um, there always, there is always going to be a threat of a, an epidemic, if not a global pandemic, and it almost seems as though, you know, this is something that they can pretty much concoct on a fairly regular basis. That's all since 2003, Daniel. So this whole idea that, well, this is a a once-in-a-century threat, um, that's not what they are going to impose upon us when it comes to to their reactions to other various threats that we have seen just even in the last 20 years. And isn't it funny that alongside all of these mysterious things that pop up are always vaccines? They're actually working on a Zika mRNA. Moderna which produced no product for seven years, Moderna, you know, the last letters are mRNA um, or RNA, they uh, pop out, suddenly become the lead, uh, you know, champion in the Super Bowl of, of, bio, of biologic products out of nowhere. And then now on the backside of that, they have 15 more ready, and, and they are pushing this RSV shot. I promise you, it will be out in a few, few months. Uh, they just got uh, expedited uh, review status from the FDA, done phase three trial, which we all know is a joke now. And by the way, RSV itself was a lab leak in the 1950s. But more and more what this has revealed, and a lot of people knew this before, but you know, people like myself were never into this before, that the entire vaccine industry is built on a lie. And worse than that, a lot of it's a push-pull that they created this. This is out open source. You could look it up right now in Africa. You have spread uh, the spread of polio from live attenuated vaccines. Most, most polio now is spread by vaccines. This is a very serious problem and that we need to get to the bottom of. This is not just, oh, something came about and they responded stupidly, naively, tyr- even tyrannically, uh, did you know, overkill or the wrong things. 
that's not the point we're trying to get across in, in the book. This is much more serious than that. Now that we know this wasn't a natural phenomenon, which we always knew, uh, this, they are building and constructing every day the biomedical security and surveillance state. Um, and we have done nothing. In, in the last chapter of the book, we lay out everything that you can do in state legislatures to end this, to preclude this from happening. Uh, we have barely, in very few states, precluded the masking, the shutdown, the emergency powers, the mandates, um, and you know, government foisting upon us these products, government blocking from us treatment. Remember, this is important. If we're suddenly going to have all these viruses upon us, you know, we better make sure we have treatment for it. Well, guess what? What happens if they lock us in a building and set it on fire and block the exits? Well, that's exactly what they did with COVID. And that really is a big part of the book because the maniacal blocking of every treatment outpatient was extremely revealing because commensurate with how much you thought that COVID was a threat is how much you would be like, oh my gosh, we need to treat this, right? What was the whole point? Alleviate the burden on the hospitals. But they embargoed outpatient treatment. And that was even before the vaccine. That's right. They embargoed outpatient treatment. What is the benign explanation for that? And that's a big part of the theme we develop. Yeah, I cannot help but wonder if uh, Pfizer or Moderna owned the patent on uh, things like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and could charge $50 a dose for it if they would have been so quick to say, oh, no, that is, you know, that's witchcraft. Don't believe in the, don't take those horse tranquilizers and everything else. They would have been absolutely happy to pump that out there, uh, probably for profit. Uh, Dan, I'm going to take a time out here, but on the other side, I want to ask you about Event 201 which was something that happened in uh, yep. 2019, just a few months before, about three months before, to be precise, uh, the actual outbreak of, uh, of what we now know as COVID-19, the coronavirus from China, and as you say, by way of the United States. I want to ask your thoughts on that. Uh, the left is going crazy in trying to debunk this as being a predictor and a plan of what happened, but, boy, the similarities are very chilling. And I want to see how you cover that as well in The for- the Rise of the Fourth Reich. Daniel Horwitz is my guest. The Rise of the Fourth Reich. <clears throat> Confronting COVID fascism with a new Nuremberg trial so it never happens again. Daniel will continue with us after the news on AM 1420 The Answer. Enlightening the sleeping masses and stoking the fire of the American dream. Always Right Radio with Bob France on The Answer. Okay, onward. Thanks for being with us again on AM 1420, The Answer. It's 1035. We continue now with Daniel Horowitz, author, uh, columnist, uh, podcast host, and more. He's, of course, a senior editor at Conservative Review. We started talking to him years and years ago from that vantage point. Now his book with Steve Dace is out. It was released last week, and it is an absolute must-read, not just for the entertainment value, although it is very entertaining and illuminating. But honestly, this is... This is potentially a call to the savior of the country and maybe the planet. I kid you not when I say this. It's called Rise of the Fourth Reich, confronting COVID fascism with a new Nuremberg trial so it never happens again. And what this book does, it basically underscores the vital importance of the Nuremberg Code, and it actually proposes or kind of depicts a mock Nuremberg trial in which we call everybody... Uh, who has been a part of the COVID scam. And it's not that there isn't a coronavirus. That's not what we mean by scam. But we're talking about its spread. 
and the reactions to it and who got rich and who is who got more powerful because of it and daniel you actually wrote uh in a promotion on your substack the future of humanity which is kind of why i phrased it the way i did the future of humanity will rise or fall based on the success in reestablishing the nuremberg code so um first go ahead and respond to that and then i'm going to ask you about event 201 that's a pretty strong statement right there well, whatever tyranny you're willing to comply with, that's the tyranny that's going to be imposed upon you. That's what we learn. There is nothing they are not willing to do to our bodies. If you think about it, if a government could create viruses, foisted upon you, block the treatment for it, and then restrict your life, liberty, and property in its most literal sense, they, they could criminalize human breathing without getting an injection, without you know, covering your breathing holes. There's quite literally nothing they cannot do to you. And then, again, you look at the, I mean, the most modest estimates of what this shot has done to people, and they have 15 more mRNAs in the pipeline, some of them very close to coming out. I mean, that statement is quite true. This ain't your, you know, Reagan versus Tip O'Neill era of fighting over tax rates. Okay, this is life and liberty in its most basic sense. Um, the notion that they could just engage in germ warfare, that they could engage in bioterrorism, that they can g- engage in biomedical security and surveillance over our bodies. How could we just walk away from this? You look at a state like Ohio, and, and your legislature has barely, barely passed any of the items we have on that list that clearly need to be affirmed. I mean, typically when you go through a situation like this, you emerge from it with constitutional amendments. You emerge from it with almost overcompensating in the other direction and banning all of this behavior. Here, we just, we just walk on. And, and that's our warning. This is still going on, and they're actually tightening the screws to it. Daniel uh, Horwitz is my guest. Daniel, uh, thank you for that. And that's, that's very well said. Um, whatever tyranny you're willing to accept is what we're going to get. Um, I want to talk about Event 201. I asked Dr. Robert Malone about this last Monday. And um, he discussed it, and you know, the the left, of course, has tried everything they can to debunk the suggestion that this was a predictor and was an intended, essential prediction um, of of what was going to happen, or moreover, what they were trying to create and what they were trying to make happen. Talking about Event Two One, it was um, called an exercise. It was hosted by the John Hopkins Center for Health Security in partnership with the World Economic Forum and the Gates <laughs> Foundation. Shockingly enough. And what they did is they came together and they put together uh, scenarios in which, you know, world, global pandemics and how they should and would respond to them. And what stood out to me in some of the clips of that um, panel discussion that they had in this, in this scenario, Daniel, was the very direct suggestions that any mRNA vaccines that they may produce to respond to such a uh, thing. And again, we're talking four months, I think, five months before the actual on, uh, you know, the onset of the coronavirus worldwide originating Wuhan, in Wuhan. Um, you know, they basically said, you know, we would have to rush these things to the market when typically, and even Dr. Anthony Fauci talked about this, typically we would need three, four, five to ten years to really do the large uh, 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 scale studies that would be would need to be done to determine long-term effects on people. And they said, basically, we would forego that. We would have to forego that in such a scenario. Then six months later, that's exactly what they did. It's exactly what they began. When you watch that, can you try to uh, square that with what you're talking about in in, uh, the rise of the Fourth Reich? 
Sure, sure. Again, this was not some random thing, and it's not just Event 201. It's a context of an entire germ warfare game. They've certainly ratcheted up since 9-11, um, the growth of the biomedical security state. Again, what was Event 201? They hold these nerdy tabletop simulations all the time. But like you said, this one was a couple months before at least the official known outbreak. And the simulation was an outbreak of a novel zoonotic coronavirus transmitted from bats to pigs to people that eventually becomes efficiently transmissible, transmissible from person to person, leading to a severe pandemic. And the pathogen, the disease causes are modeled largely on SARS, but is more transmissible in the community setting by people with mild symptoms. And governments, international organizations, and businesses should plan now for how essential corporate capabilities will be utilized during a large-scale pandemic. Boy, I mean, if these guys aren't profits, I don't know what is. But again, it's, this is in the backdrop of an entire – you can go back a decade, you can go back longer. January 2010, I believe, Bill Gates predicted we'd be ushering in a decade of vaccines. In 2012, NIH partners with Moderna, an obscure startup company, to create mRNA vaccines. And they're you know, still fighting with them over the patent rights this day. September 9th, 2013, uh, Ralph Barrick, the doctor behind this gain-of-function research, um, announced a $10 million grant from Fauci's NIAID to study the pathogenic activity of viruses, including SARS and MERS, Ebola, uh, highly pathogenic influenza, to help identify novel targets for therapeutic intervention uh, and improve strategies for vaccine design. And then, you know, the, two years later, November 2015, Barrick and company published their discovery in Nature magazine on cracking the code of transferring coronavirus from bats into mice with human lung tissue that's now, you know, pathogenic and can create an, an, an epidemic. So, you know... And, and now we know that NIH admitted to funding that. So you can't look at this in a, in a vacuum. Uh, January 10th, 2017. So this is 10 days before Trump took office, right? Um, now, Trump would never have known this was going on during the transition. But Fauci delivers a speech at Georgetown. If you want to look it up, it's called the Pandemic Preparedness in the Next Administration. He warned there will definitely be a pandemic in this administration. This administration is going to come in the next few days. And uh, what we know for sure, that no matter what history has told us, definitely that it will happen. The thing we are extraordinarily, extraordinarily confident about is that we will see this in the, the next few years. And then remember, three days later, that's January 13th, um, Lisa Monaco. So she was the, I want to say the Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor to Obama. So she wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs on March 2020. So this is that that that's the panic month. Of that's the right about when it pandemic. Hit, yep. mm -hmm. And she 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 was the one who revealed this at the time. She bragged about it that on January 13, 2017, again a week before Trump took office three days after Fauci made those comments, that um, she took part in a pandemic war game with the transition team members of the incoming admin. And what was that scenario? 
A new virus was spreading with alarming speed, causing global transportation stoppages, supply chain disruptions, and plunging stock prices. With a vaccine many months away, U.S. healthcare infrastructure was severely strained. And then one more data point I would add to that is um, on that very day, okay, so January 13, 2017, the FDA placed a new regulation to the Federal Register called enhancing FDA's authority um, to basically shepherd through products in the event of a pandemic influenza. That's what they called it, pandemic influenza. Um, it permits the FDA to waive otherwise applicable current good manufacturing practice requirements to accommodate emergency response needs, allow CDC to create and issue emergency use instructions um, concerning the FDA-approved conditions of use for eligible products. I mean, I could go on and on and on. And they did this with smallpox. They randomly have a smallpox. You know, they have a smallpox therapeutic they created. How do you create that? There is no smallpox. How is that even profitable? How does the company think they're going to make profit? Well, and, and how is it safe to try it? Well, they say they try it in animals. But don't you need human trials? Well, they say it's not feasible to do it in humans, right? Because we don't want to spread that. Um, I could go on and on. Monkeypox. Whatever happened with monkeypox? Did you know that the gyneos? Okay, that's the vaccine they were using. Um, if you go to most state departments of health, I'm sure Ohio has it. They, they promote it to this day, J-Y-N-N-E-O-S vaccine. Do you know it was given full licensure, not just EUA, full licensure in 2019? So the breakout was 2022. If you remember, a year before in 2021, it was a German tabletop simulation with some of these same players of a monkeypox outbreak. Um, in 2019, they had a full approval. Well, you might say, well, Daniel, that, that's good. Full approval, not EUA. No, no, no. Do you know there was no clinical trial at the time? They used what, if you remember, they used it with a baby COVID shot. And it's now the new paradigm. It's called immunobridging. You just look at antibody titers, not clinical outcomes. It was given full approval. I mean, that's like even more emergency than COVID to rush through with immunobridging. 2019 monkeypox that it wasn't around i mean wasn't really around um what, what what is that and by the way that shot is extremely dangerous it's written on the actual label of the shot right because it's fully approved so it has an fda right. label it is written on the actual shot page six of the fda label 1.2 percent of all recipients in the trial that's a, that's big experience cardiac adverse events of special interest and the number was 2.1% among those who had already had a smallpox vax. Because this kind of like aggravates it. It's in the genre of smallpox vaccines in that family. So I guess it aggravates it if you already had that. Um, and, you know, it also reveals that um, between 11 and 18% of participants experienced tri elevated troponin levels. If you've been following some of the COVID studies, the COVID shots, um, a lot of people have subclinical myocarditis. So one way of finding that is elevated troponin levels. I mean, this is, again, Bob, I didn't know any of this. You talked to me before 2020. I didn't know any of this. I didn't pay attention to it. I didn't know it existed. But how could we not dig through this biomedical security empire after everything we've gone through? No, no, that's a great question, Daniel. That's a ton of information. I cannot thank you enough for sharing it. Um, I do want to go back briefly to just the Event 201 thing because of when you do an Internet search on it, 
uh, Daniel Horowitz. Um, the results are the typical results you, results you would expect, even not on the Google engine. Uh, and that is a bunch of the left-wing support groups for the WHO and the World Economic Forum and Gates and so on and so forth saying this thing's debunked. Uh, this is not a predictor. This did not predict this was going to happen. And I'm, I'm sitting there reading all of these things saying, you know, right-wing conspiracy theorists say that the event 201, uh, predicted, uh, you know, the rise of the coronavirus in 2020. I don't think it predicted it. I think what I'm, what I'm reading and what I'm listening to when I hear it is that they planned it. That they carried it out. That this was indeed a violation of the Nuremberg Code. This was experimentation on the human population with, uh, without their consent, without their informed consent, etc. I don't understand why they don't think that we are smart enough to figure out that when they are describing something, particularly as you said, bat to pig to human and so on and so forth, and then it carries out in almost that exact same way, except for the fact that it started in a lab, um, and it's what they planned. I don't understand how they think they can continue to pull the wool over the eyes of, of the people of the world the United States included. But, but, Bob, it's still going on. I mean, you have the, the bio labs in Ukraine that were set up by Metabiota, oh boy. Okay, which is tied into Hunter Biden. It's, it's tied into the same. Uh, they, they also did research with Dr. Xi in the Wuhan lab and EcoHealth mm. Alliance. They're all part of that same cesspool, and they're doing this to this very day. Um, and also, they, they sell pandemic insurance. Uh, they actually have something called the U.S. Um, what is it called? The U.S. Agency for International Development has something called the PREDICT Project, which seeks to predict and prevent global emerging disease threats. I mean, look, they've, they've been doing all this, and uh, it's, it's going on everywhere. And my point is, you're like, well, they know we're on to this. They know we're on to this. Well, yeah, but what have we done about it? Name, I mean, aside from Florida, there really is no other state that's, that's recommending against the shots and banning this stuff. I can't even get, you know, simple no-mandate bills passed the Ohio legislature. I mean, we're struggling. We're, we're implementing a lot of the ideas, or at least introducing a lot of the ideas in the book. Um, let me give you just one, one simple idea. If, I, if, if you had to press me, Daniel, what's the most important thing we can do uh, emerging from this? What's the single most important legislative item, let's say? And what I would have to say is it's a state constitutional amendment, which in a state like Ohio, with super majorities, you should easily be able to get uh, this on the ballot so the people could vote for this. An amendment that basically, and we have the language in the book, and we pitched it. We have people in West Virginia, Iowa, and South Dakota that have introduced this bill. Um, but to put in the Bill of Rights that everyone has the right to refuse any therapeutic, prophylactic, uh, medical device or vaccine and cannot be discriminated against in the realm of public accommodation on account of exercising that right. That simple immunization, that that's the immunization against tyranny we need. That is a full stop. There is never, and this is the biggest lesson of Nuremberg, there is never a right to lay claim, to lay claim on body A to accommodate person B. There's no such legality, morality, or science, right? Because what we've learned from this is, hey, if a mask works, which of course it doesn't, but if it works, then go wear it. If the vaccine works, go take it. The fact that that other person doesn't take it shouldn't affect you. And if it does, then you're full of BS, right? That's the point. It is never okay to assert that an individual has to take an affirmative medical action to his body in order to live free. That is not okay. No. Because if a government can do that, 
again, there's quite literally nothing they can do. Typically, you have government regulation. They regulate inactivity that you do. Here, they're regulating your existence, your inactivity, and mandating upon you, you take an action, but not just any action, one against your body, and not just any medical action, but something that is extremely novel and now is you know, proven to be a problem. And again, we need in every state, we need this in place because by, by the fall, they will have at least one, if not two versions of Pfizer and Moderna RSV shots. And what we've learned about mRNA in one nutshell, Bob, is this. There is no modulator. There's no shutoff valve. So, and no one could dispute this. It does not stay in the shoulder muscle. So it codes your body. It goes everywhere, coding it to produce stuff. And even if the stuff isn't a spike protein, it could be a different protein. There's nothing that God made in your body that is okay synthetically to produce in unlimited quantities in unlimited locations for an unlimited period of time. That needs to be immediately shut off. We have legislation in Idaho we're pushing to bar mRNA shots within the state. Um, This is not okay. But you know what? The more we learn, the more we just go on. Oh, yeah, yeah, this killed people. Oh, yeah, yeah, there's a problem with strokes. HHS admitted that. And we just go on as if nothing happened. In every red state hospital, they're still mandating this on people to this very day. You and I are, are trying to reconstruct what did happen. But this you don't have to speculate. This would be if they got rid of it all and they tried to cover it up. Yeah, we don't want to talk about that. No, they're still doing it. They're still mandating it. That's what's unbelievable. In VAERS, we now have, there's about 24,000 medical billing codes. So that accounts for kind of every malady, injury, illness that we know of, right? A medical billing code. Do you know in VAERS, we have over 15,000 categories of billing codes. It accounts for about 60% of the realm and scope of all medical injury that you could possibly have now associated with this shot. And yet, we continue to be told, if you try to cite VAERS statistics of adverse events, uh, you are, you, it's not scientific because anybody can do it. Any, any, anybody who wants to go online and report that I had this event happen, they don't have to prove it, but none of that is true. First yep. of all, first of all, to my understanding, it is a very complex thing to make a VAERS reporting event. Uh, you, you, it's something that usually doctors have to do for you, um, but it's very, very difficult, very, very complex. And the idea that so many people are learning how to do it, figuring it out only to perpetuate a hoax that they didn't suffer from this thing or that thing. Um, it's it's just it's nonsensical. Um, Daniel, we're a little short on time here, but I just want to hit one last thing because what you're talking about is going forward, and I want to talk about going forward in another realm here. Just just the mask study, the the Cochrane study that was done. It was published in The Lancet, 65 different studies over 19 countries, massive randomized controlled trials everywhere. And the CDC says, too bad. We're not listening. We're never yep. changing our mask guidance based on yep. this study or these studies. They said, our guidance will change when there's no more disease in an area. Then we'll say, they're saying, basically, as long as there's disease, we're going to recommend masks, particularly for children. And Daniel, again, there's the study says the masks don't work, even if disease is present. She said, Saying, too bad we're going to do it anyway if that's the mentality of our leadership of the cdc and i can only imagine it extends to the nih and the other health organizations in the country and in the, and the global ones then then you know there's they're, they're basically saying we're never going to be rid of this mentality we're never going to be rid of this tyranny of course and that's another 
feather in your cap there that this is not some sort of wrong response to a natural thing. This was all induced and created for the Great Reset. This is the rise of the Fourth Reich, quite literally the Third Reich, but except that mentality now has insane technology to track, trace, and enforce upon you. It has a global reach, which it didn't have then, and it has this public-private partnership so you can't escape it. Um, That is what we're all about. Policies do not get updated with facts because they want the policy. It was never about protecting you from the virus, because if it was, they wouldn't have created it. And if it was, they wouldn't have blocked treatment for it. You know, that's that's the bottom line that you're going to take away from this book. They will not change it on their own. You have to rip that power away. Power once taken is never handed back in the state legislatures, particularly in a state like Ohio, where allegedly Republicans have full control. This is the time, just as the Constitution begins with the words, we the people, so must the fulfillment of never again begins with us asserting our rights to medical freedom, bodily autonomy, that they can never do this to us again. We need that immunization, again, in the state legislatures, county governments as well, to give up the vaccine funding, like Collier County, Florida just did. We're not doing this anymore. Um, You know, a lot of the biomedical surveillance, remember, a lot of this began not at a federal level. Mainly what it, what it started with was county and state government. That's right. So that's where we really need to push this fight. Um, you're never going to change CDC. We need to create a constitutional sanctuary from their Fourth Reich. Yeah, I'm glad you used the word allegedly when you talked about the Ohio legislature because it is just alleged that they have all of this power because they have completely split themselves, and it's a it's a mess. But that's another story. I'm glad you used the word so it never happens again uh, in that last uh, those those closing remarks because, of course, that's a significant part of the title. Rise of the Fourth Reich, confronting COVID fascism with a new Nuremberg trial so it never happens again. That is of the utmost importance. Uh, I'm looking at a Barnes & Noble link, so I'll just tell people go to barnesandnoble.com to find this book. I'm looking at the Amazon link. Obviously, you can go there, wherever you get your books. But uh, it's been a long time coming. It's been a long wait since this was finished uh, yep. last August, and now it's available. So get online and get this book, Rise of the Fourth Reich. I anticipate a lot of conversation with listeners as the uh, days and weeks go on now as people read this and we talk about what needs to be done to stop this from happening again. Daniel, thank you. Uh, thanks, Steve, again for me for the work you guys have done on this obviously we'll stay in touch looking forward to coming back take care thank you daniel that's daniel horowitz senior editor of conservative review if you want to hear a great podcast by the way listen to daniel's podcast it's the conservative conscience he brings so much knowledge all right it's uh news time already we'll take this time here and come back john lott will join us in an entirely different realm on the second amendment that's next on am 1420 the answer This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by The Floor King and Keeping Medicare Simple. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. 
and our honored dead who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. This is Always Right Radio with Bob Frantz on AM 1420, The Answer. Onward into hour number three, nine minutes after 11 o'clock on this Monday, the 27th morning of the second month of the year of our Lord, 2023. Thanks for being with us. Thanks again to uh, Daniel Horowitz. I'm telling you, this is, you know, there's a lot of books. A lot of people have made a lot of money expressing a lot of opinions in a lot of books since COVID hit. Um, Daniel and Steve are no different. They're going to sell a lot of books. They're going to make a lot of money. But it doesn't matter because this is not about that for them. They are literally trying to save the country and humanity, and the Nuremberg Code absolutely must be restored, or at least new policies must be passed relative to the Nuremberg Code to make sure this never happens again. We violated, as Steve told me before Daniel came on, uh, Steve told me back in August, we violated virtually every single syllable of the Nuremberg Code uh, by pushing those poison shots on the populace, particularly by mandating them for large, large segments of the population. This must not be allowed to ever happen again. Uh, Their book is just extraordinarily important. I think you need to get it. Uh, I make nothing off of this. This is just my advice uh, for you. And that is go get uh, The Rise of the Fourth Reich by Steve Dace and Daniel Horwitz. Let's pivot now to another kind of death, uh, that by firearm. You know, uh, those firearms continue to leap out of people's holsters uh, on their own and fire and kill people. They jump up off of desks. They leave uh, gun cabinets and gun safes, and they just go out on killing sprees all the time because we continue to hear about the epidemic since we're talking about pandemics a moment ago, the epidemic of gun violence, gun violence. I submit to you and continue to say so. There's no such thing as gun violence. There is violence, period. Uh, Weapon of choice is largely irrelevant. Violence is committed by persons, not by guns. That's why I don't call it gun violence. I have a big problem with that. But earlier this month, you saw another shooting, a terrible, tragic thing on a school campus. In this case, it wasn't an elementary school. It was a college, but it matters not. Dead lives, or excuse me, dead people and victims uh, is unacceptable in any advanced society. But the response to that is what we're talking about now. President Biden used the shooting at Michigan State University to call for a ban on assault weapons and magazines that hold 50 or 70 bullets. This is completely ridiculous uh, because it has nothing to do with the issue at hand. The issue in East uh, Lansing, Michigan, had nothing to do with large capacity assault weapons or anything of the sort. And joining us now to tell us about it and what he thinks is being done here is John Lott. John Lott back with us on AM 1420, The Answer. It's been a little while. He's the president of the Crime Prevention Research Center. Uh, Thanks for joining us, John Lott. Appreciate you being here. How are you, sir? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yes, sir. Um, so it's it's really interesting. I'm so glad you wrote the article you did that ran in uh, Real Clear Politics, uh, pointing out the obvious, which anybody who's paying attention should know, is that Joe Biden went back to his familiar argument, his canard, that uh, if we ban assault weapons, suddenly there won't be so much gun violence in America, even though we had a mass shooting event on the campus of Michigan State University that did not involve, quote, unquote, assault weapons. Can you tell us more? 
Right. Well, I mean, uh, he gave a speech immediately afterwards calling for a ban on assault weapons and magazines that he said could hold 70 or 90 rounds. Uh, the thing is, the attack occurred using handguns, uh, had standard-sized magazines that were there. Uh, but, you know, even more bizarrely, uh, this criminal shouldn't have been out. He should have been in jail. But uh, a, a George Soros-backed prosecutor there had refused to prosecute him for uh, firearms-related violations uh, back in 2019. Uh, one of the charges that he was facing, a felony, would have resulted in five years in prison. But because he was black uh, and the uh, district attorney was into uh, racial equity justice, uh, the district attorney didn't prosecute him because he was black. Uh, but, you know, he would have had, he probably still would have been in jail and he would have had a felony record that, uh, gun control advocates would say would have prevented him from legally buying a gun. Uh, and there are many other charges that could have been brought against him. Apparently the guy would go into his small backyard in the middle of the city there and, uh, and fire his gun. Uh, you know, there are lots of ordinances there with regard to people just firing a gun in a small backyard, uh, inside a, um, uh, the police were called multiple times, but he was never convicted of any of those types of violations uh, that he was engaged in. So, you know, and the thing is, it's just not Biden. Uh, gun control groups generally were calling immediately. Bloomberg's groups were calling for uh, uh, background checks on rifles, but rifles already have background checks if you buy one from a dealer uh, in Michigan. Uh, they were calling for red flag laws. Again, uh, it wouldn't have made any difference in this attack. Uh, the reason is is because uh, Michigan and all the other states already have something called involuntary commitment laws, which if uh, the police are called and the police believe that there there is a reasonable chance that the person is a danger to themselves or others, they take the person in for a mental health care evaluation. If the mental health care experts believe that the person is, there's a reasonable chance that the person is a danger to themselves or others, then uh, there uh, is an immediate hearing. And uh, uh, if the person can't afford a lawyer, one is provided for them. Uh, and uh, if he is, John, John, uh, let me jump in on this for a second here because I want to hit every point on this. Um, reasonableness according to what standard? Because reason, according to you, may be different than according to me. What you deem to be reasonable, I may not. What I deem to be reasonable, somebody else may not. So this is a guessing game as to whether or not somebody who has been reported, even anonymously, by somebody else is potentially being a danger to himself or others, and I know they have guns. Um, it's up to some you know, completely subjective standard from a police officer to decide whether or not they take the guns and then uh, force this guy to go to court to get him back. Well, courts pretty much decide uh, kind of what classifies as reasonableness. It's basically you think there's about a 20% probability that the person is a danger to themselves or others. The issue, though, with regard to red flag laws is it's the exact same standard for red flag laws. Uh, the difference between the involuntary commitment and the red flag laws is that uh, there are no mental health care professionals involved. There's no hearing. 
all the judge has in front of them is a piece of paper uh, with a, a written complaint. The judge never talks to the person who made the complaint. He never talks to the person that the complaint is made about when he makes the decision whether or not to take away the gun. But as far as the reasonableness standard and whether or not uh, a decision is made, it's the exact same under both of those conditions. The the big other difference is the fact that uh, under red flag laws, the only thing that happens is you take away the person's legally owned gun. Under the involuntary commitment standard, there's a broad range of actions that a judge can do, including taking away somebody's gun. But they can say, okay, I'm concerned uh, if you go and seek uh, see voluntary mental health care professional. Uh, we'll review it in a week or two weeks to see how that's going. Or in the extreme case, uh, they can involuntarily commit the person. The thing is, about 99% of the time that red flag laws are used, they're used for concerns about suicide. If somebody's really suicidal, simply taking away a person's gun isn't a serious response because there's so many other ways that a person can go and commit suicide. Uh you know, if, you, if you're really concerned about the person, you also think you'd involve mental health care professionals in some way. And the red flag laws, again, the only thing that they do is take away a person's gun. So it's not, it wouldn't have made any difference in this case, given the reasonableness standard. The same police presumably would have made the exact same decision that they made uh, in the case involving this guy. Yeah, we're we're on such a slippery slope here, John. That um, I'm not sure I'm not sure how to feel about the idea of involuntary commitment or taking away somebody's guns. We're talking about thought crimes. We're talking about trying to predict what somebody's behavior is going to be. Even again, if it's not what what's really so dangerous about this, uh, and I think a lot of people have pointed this out, is you know oftentimes it's not a concerned family member calling to report somebody as potentially being a danger to himself or others. Oftentimes it's enemies. Somebody who's got a gripe. Somebody who's got beef with a neighbor, with a coworker, uh, calling authorities on them and saying, yeah, he's a really angry guy. He's got a red hat, by the way. He's really pro-gun. He's angry all the time. He's gri- griping about this or that, saying they ought to bring back the death penalty, blah, 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 blah. And all it takes is for somebody to say, I think he's a threat to others. He's armed and he's angry all the time. And according to the laws, or at least the promote people promoting red flag laws and even involuntary uh, commitment or involuntary uh, uh, evaluations you know somebody who may or may not be may not be a, a threat at all but it's just being turned in by somebody who doesn't like them or disagrees with them suddenly their life is up life is upside down I got a big problem with that sure I understand well that's one reason why you want to have a hearing that's one reason why you want to be able to have evidence being contested it's one reason why you want the judge to actually be able to talk to the people that are involved rather than just simply seeing a written complaint that's in front of him, as you have with red flag laws. Uh, You know, and and you want him to be able to have the flexibility that he has for a wide range of options uh, with regard to uh, the involuntary commitment type rules that are there. You you have none of that with regard to red flag laws. you know, and it creates the types of concerns that you you raise are important concerns. Do the uh, in an involuntary commitment type of hearing like you're talking about, does the individual who called to report somebody as a potential threat have to testify as well? Yeah, the person the person who's making the complaint just can't send in a piece of paper. 
they have to they have to be available to go and uh, appear before the judge and explain what their concern is. You know, there's so many other problems with regard to red flag laws uh, that are kind of related to what you're bringing up here, and that is, um, you know, let's say uh, you have a police officer who is depressed. Uh, you know, taking away a police officer's guns essentially takes away his job. The concern that you have is that. You know, you could have a well-meaning person that says such and such is depressed. I know they have a gun uh, and put in a written complaint. But, uh, you know, you create all sorts of perverse incentives. So, for example, uh, what does that do to the depressed person's willingness to go and talk to his friends or his neighbors? Uh, It makes it so that he's going to be fearful of doing that. Uh, The executive director for the Crime Prevention Research Center, Nikki Gozer, uh, watched her husband be murdered in front of her over a decade ago uh, by a stalker. Um, you know, she was, as anybody would be, uh, incredibly depressed after that. But uh, could you imagine uh, if her guns were taken away from her when she just had seen a stalker uh, murder her husband? Yeah. Uh, it would have it would have compounded things. But. You know, you could have a neighbor or a friend or somebody who's well-meaning, not just the type of pernicious example that you're bringing up, which is important, Mm -hmm. but is well-meaning and just says, look, I'm concerned. She's depressed. Uh, Her husband was just murdered in front of her uh, and and send in a written complaint. Well, under red flag laws, she wouldn't know about that until the police showed up at her door taking away her ability to defend herself Uh, under involuntary commitment. She would be able to go to a mental health care professional and explain uh, what's happening there. And if she wasn't able to convince the mental health care professionals uh, when there was a hearing, which there would have to be, uh, she could explain to the judge what her concern was. That if you took away her ability to go and defend herself after uh, a stalker had just murdered her husband, uh, you know, you'd really make her depressed. You'd really make her just want to haul up inside her home all the yeah. time and be afraid to go out. Uh, and so uh, these red flag laws can actually accomplish the opposite of what you'd like because simply being able to go and talk to people can be extremely important in terms of uh, controlling people's depression that's there and helping them overcome it. And if you're afraid to talk to other people, uh, because you're worried that somebody may misinterpret it or may, out of well-meaning, uh, go and take away your ability to go and defend yourself, uh, you're merely making it much worse. Yeah, John John Lott is my guest. He John R. Lott is the president of the Crime Prevention Center. And, and uh, you know, I, I have to say, there's a lot of other elements to this that we probably don't have time to get into, John, but you make very, very good points, particularly as it pertains to red flag laws and the fact that those can be anonymous complaints that people make or reports that people make compared to the involuntary, um, at least appearance, if not commitment situations. I still see troubling there. Uh, but, John, before you go, let's talk about the first part you wrote in your column for, for Real Clear Politics, um, or at least that's where I read it after the East Lansing shooting, and you talk about the fact that um, you have quoted mass murderers, multiple mass murderers on their decisions about where they decided to open fire. 
and they target gun-free zones intentionally because they don't like being shot back at. Um, why does no one get this? Why do we continue to see the belief expressed by those particularly who are opposed to the Second Amendment altogether that a sign on a window or a door that says no guns allowed here means a would-be killer is going to say, darn, I don't want to break the rules. I guess I have to turn around and go away now. This is exactly where they go first, right? Right. No. You know, it's amazing to me that the media just refuses to actually mention these parts of these guys' diaries or manifestos. I mean, you take somebody like the Buffalo mass murderer last year. He spends a lot of time going through and explaining why he picked the target that he did. He talks about his ideal target being a place where victims aren't able to go and defend themselves. These guys may be crazy in some sense, but they're not stupid. Anybody who reads these documents that they put out knows very clearly that uh, their goal is to get media attention. And they know the more people they kill, the more media attention that they're going to be able to go and get. And if they go and uh, go to a place where victims aren't able to go and defend themselves, they're going to be able to go and kill more people. If you have one police officer in uniform, they have an incredibly difficult job. It's kind of like a neon sign above them that says, shoot me first. If the, if the attacker is going to go there and they know that there's only one person with a gun, it's the person in uniform, who do you think they go after first? They know if they kill that one person, they're going to have free reign to go after everybody else that's there. And it's not just that. Um, you know, these guys have huge strategic advantages. If there's somebody in uniform, they can go and and wait for them to leave the area before they engage in the attack, or they can go and move on to another place to attack themselves. Or, as I say, they can take that person out first. Uh, if you have people with concealed carry, you actually make the job of the officer much safer, because if the attacker goes through and tries to attack the officer that's there, he has to reveal his position. And when he's going after the officer, now he has to worry about somebody behind him or to the side, Somebody that he didn't notice whether they had a gun or not is going to be able to go and try to take him out and stop the attack on the officer. And so that stops them from doing it. But you're exactly right about the signs that are there. You know, uh, would you rather have a sign in front of a school that says this school is a gun-free zone or have a sign in front of a school that says warning select teachers and staff at the school are caring? Here's the bottom line, and that is, So you have a three-year prison sentence for somebody violating a gun-free zone. For you or I, a law-abiding citizen, that's a huge penalty to become a felon. That's right. Your life is going to be completely changed. But let's say you're going in with the notion of going and killing seven or eight or nine or ten people and going to be facing all those life sentences. It's the notion that an additional three-year prison term is going to be, you say, well, you know, I can take ten life sentences, but you add in, that additional three years for going into a gun-free zone, that, that's just too much. I can do the 10 yeah. life sentences, but the additional three years, uh, no, sorry, I'm not going to do the attack on that. What happens There's is... A, is uh, John, John, I've got to, John, I've got to interrupt you. I apologize because we're out of time here. But just to un- sure. underscore one of the last points you made there, there's a district in uh, Colorado called Weldon Valley. And I posted this uh, picture of the sign that hangs up outside on the fence outside of their school uh, a long time ago. And it says, attention, please be aware that certain staff members at Weldon Valley School are legally armed and may use whatever force necessary to protect our students, period. 
And that is exactly what we're talking about. Who is more likely, or excuse me, what school is more likely to be targeted by a mass shooter? That school or one in which firearms are forbidden on the premises? So that's just a very important point uh, point to underscore. Uh, John R. Lott, president of the Crime Research, uh, Crime Prevention Research Center, excuse me. Uh, Did I get it right? Crime, Crime Prevention Research Center, right? Right, yeah. Okay. People can find more at our website at crimeresearch.org, crimeresearch.org. That, that's you. where I was headed, right. I wanted to make sure people know where to find you. John Arlott, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate all the work you do. Thank you. 1128, we'll be back. This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by Keeping Medicare Simple and The Floor King. Okay, it's 11.38, final segment this morning of Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Thanks so much for uh, being with us and sticking with us. Hopefully you've enjoyed the conversations. We had uh, some really in-depth stuff with uh, Jim Jordan way back in uh, hour number one. We had a full hour with Daniel Horowitz uh, in hour number two. And uh, we just finished a great conversation with John R. Lott on what can and should be done if people are perceived as threats in their gun owners. Uh, what should be done that does not take away their constitutional rights? I've got a bit of a problem with all of it, to be truthful. I've got a bit of a problem with uh, red flag laws. I've got a big problem with in, uh, involuntary, uh, uh, what's the word, involuntary commitment, I think, I guess, into institutions. I mean, we're talking about thought crimes. And I, uh, I, I will discuss that more, obviously, as time goes by. But I want to go back to the conversation with Daniel Horowitz and truthfully go back all the way to our monologue in the uh, 9 o'clock hour from about 9.15 to about 9.25. Um, I talked about how really coincidental and terrific it was that we got this news from the Federal Department of Energy over the weekend. And what we found, the announcement by, uh, made by the Department of Energy yesterday, was that, yes... The Wuhan flu did indeed originate in a Wuhan lab, not in a wet market. Now, Daniel Horowitz went out of his way to say, yeah, you can say it originated in Wuhan, but I don't like to call it the Wuhan virus. I call it the U.S. virus because the U.S. made it possible. And the U.S. was was largely responsible for the um, violation of the Nuremberg Codes and so forth that Daniel and I were just talking about in response to it. The U.S. has just as much to blame in this as anybody else does. But um, for those who called us conspiracy nuts when we said that the uh, there's no way that the virus could have been uh, uh, could have been uh, you know spread worldwide from somebody eating a bad batch of bat soup that it had to be done in a in a lab we were called conspiracy theorists we were called science deniers and nuts and all kinds of other things and now to hear not only one the fbi but two the department of energy whose scientists studied this um the idea that this was uh, you know this was leaked from a lab either intentionally or unintentionally it doesn't identify that but it's it's um you know a little bit um satisfying not even satisfying. It's not the word, but it's just it. It, it makes us feel a little bit uh, of what's what I'm looking for. I'm trying not to be negative here by saying vengeful or reven- with revenge, but it's it, it's nice to be proven right, and it's nice to have those of us who called us nuts, uh, at least for the time being, uh, silenced because we were we were onto something here, and it was extraordinarily important for us to identify where this came from before we even talk about what it led to. So I said it was great that we got this because the other thing that we got was some extraordinary entertainment from a very courageous Hollywood actor. Woody Harrelson, 
who is uh, you know an A-lister, a Hollywood A-lister, star of a ton of different movies. White Men Can't Jump. He was a huge part of the Hunger Games. Huge part of uh, uh, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I can't remember the one. Um, uh, 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 Natural Born Killers. Huge, huge movie star. And Woody Harrelson hosted Saturday Night Live on Saturday for the fifth time. Now, I stopped watching Saturday Night Live many, many years ago. But when you do see stories popping up on social media about something that happened, boom, there it is. And that's exactly what I found. Woody Harrelson made a point after a monologue about getting high and about kicking his alcohol demons and just other goofy things. He found 27 seconds to slip in. Uh, a line that caught every left-wing New Yorker in that audience off guard. You can hear a pin drop when he drops this 27-second bit in about a movie that he sat down against a tree, a script uh, that he was given, that he sat down against a tree to read, and what happened when he was done with it. You need to hear this. Hey, so the movie goes like this. The biggest drug cartels in the world get together and buy up all the media and all the politicians and force all the people in the world to stay locked in their homes and people can only come out if they take the cartel's drugs and keep taking them over and over. I threw the script away. I mean, who is going to believe that crazy idea? Cartel. So the movie goes like this. Um, I'm laughing, and I'm playing a laugh track from Coming to America, but you know who was not laughing? Anybody in that studio of left-wing New Yorkers. and over. I threw the script away. I mean, who is going to believe that crazy idea card? Hey. I don't know why it's skipping like that, but you understand the point. Woody Harrelson used his turn on Saturday Night Live, which is watched almost exclusively by left-wingers because they almost exclusively make fun of Republicans and conservatives. All comedy now, as you know from the Colbert Show and the Kimmel Show and the Fallon Show and all the rest of them, all comedy is now about politics. Nobody does comedy the way Carson and Leno used to do it, or even Letterman. Now it's all about politics, and that's the same thing with Saturday Night Live, which is why we stopped watching it so long ago. And here comes Woody Harrelson into the belly of the beast and telling them, what a, what a fantastic, weird script this was. Somebody said that all of the media and all of the government was going to buy up, or excuse me, uh, uh, they, they were going to buy, let me hear it again. So the movie goes like this. The biggest drug cartels in the world get together and buy up all the media and all the politicians and force all the people in the world to stay locked in their homes and people can only come out if they take the cartel's drugs and keep taking them over and over. I threw the script away. Absolutely perfect. And the message was not lost on anybody because you heard nobody there even responding to that. And now you know why. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed today's conversations. We'll see you tomorrow. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.